Yo, what's up? It's Ed and Sriram. It's the MMA podcast. It's just us. We're so lonely. How are you doing <laughs> today, Sriram? I'm good. Uh, lonely as well. We usually have guests, but uh, me and Ed are just, you know, hanging out and talking about a card, which should be fun. This, should, this is probably the regular way that it should be. It's just that we've had uh, a lot of things that merited guests. And this card is just uh, it's a regulation card, albeit a pretty good one. Yeah, with regard to, like, Fight Night cards, this is about where I want a Fight Night card to be in terms of interesting fights on it. Like, it's acceptable. Normally, yeah. I'm, I'm totally down to talk down on cards. But the problem is, like, a pay-per-view card these days, the only difference is, like, instead of having Overy and Volkov at the top, like, there's, like, one one championship-level, like, good fight in addition to the exact same fights that are on this card. That's the only <laughs> difference. That's That's my issue. I mean, this one, on average, has more fighters that I care about than a lot of pay-per-view cards. So, And we're going to talk about them. But first, let's take a second to acknowledge that James Vick got knocked out again. F in chat. <laughs> <laughs> big, big F for James Vick. Um, I think this was, yeah, this was his first fight since his UFC career. Um, if you recall, at one point, he was on a four-fight win streak. He beat, uh, he subbed Abel Trujillo who looked awful in that fight. Uh, he knocked out Marco Polo Reyes, who uh, was decent for a time. He knocked out Joe Duffy, which made everyone sad. And he <laughs> beat Trinaldo, which... Which made us sad. Made Yeah, made us sad. I don't remember how close it was. I think it was kind of close, but they were, like, clinched the whole time, and it was dumb. A dumb, sad fight. Yeah, Vic kind of long-manned him. Like, when he broke his hand, he just kind of worked with linear kicks and stuff, I think. But I haven't watched that in a while. It made me too no, sad. No, it's not a good fight, so... Not really something you want to rewatch. But yeah, he uh, he had a good win streak going, and then there's the build-up to the Gaethje fight, and everyone you know, started to quote him because he was like, oh, Gaethje is just like a Homer Simpson. All he does is take, he's a punching bag. Uh, he's punch drunk already. And he's like, yeah, maybe. Maybe that's true. But the, there was just like this implication from it all that Vic had good defense. I'm like, well, that's... <laughs> That's not true. Because uh, <laughs> uh, before this win streak, as he got knocked out by Dariush, uh, which he didn't really improve on between those fights. He just didn't fight anyone that good at pressuring besides that. And yeah, before that, he was beating grapplers. And yeah, it was just his whole career was kind of... He had a good a good run. Obviously, 8-1 uh, and one in the UFC is nothing to sneeze at. But things went down real pre- downhill pretty hard with Gaethje knocking him out. Um, and then Felder had a pretty easy time with him despite having punctured a lung. And then uh, Dan Hooker did that shifting combination into knocking him out. And then I think he was doing decently against Nico Price, and then he got knocked out with an upkick. So we just, I think everyone just assumed that he would just get knocked out by anyone at this point, even though those like aren't bad fighters to lose to. But you could just see like in the fights his confidence progressively getting lower yeah. and lower. <laughs> yeah. Uh... He fought was... uh, Andre Fialio. I don't know how to say the name. The guy is uh, definitely below a level of the fighters that Vic was fighting before, and I don't know how he rocked him, but all I saw was he was trying to finish him with uppercuts, which is really funny. Because Vic <laughs> wasn't, like, bending over. <laughs> he was just trying to leap up with uppercuts to hit him. I remember Dariush almost hit him with an uppercut that went, like, way... It was like his arm telescoped up almost to his chin. It was incredible. But, uh, it's incredible how Vic can like stand straight up, be nine feet tall, and still get hit with clean uppercuts. It makes no sense whatsoever. Like Vic should be the uppercutter. I think he uppercut Joe Duffy. But... Yeah, he did. 
yeah, other than that, he's the one getting uppercutted somehow, and it makes absolutely no sense. But so, uh, yeah, R.I.P. James Vick. Big R.I.P. And uh, I mean, most people aren't sad for him because of the, the Team White Irvin thing and the Gagey thing, and also he said a bunch of other dumb stuff on social media. So people don't really like him anymore anyway. But I mean, getting knocked out four times in five fights is pretty rough. And it uh, looks like he's uh, he's pretty much done. So, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, moving on, we have the Fight Night card coming up. It's uh, it's in Vegas. Normal normal Apex card, so small cage, I believe. And it's headlined by Alistair Overeem and Alexander Volkov. So, let's start with the more interesting fighter, I think. Uh, Sharon, what do you think of Overeem in the past couple of years? You know, since since the Blades fight, really. Yeah, I think it's been really weird because his last couple fights, the Sakai fight, was kind of a bad look in a lot of ways. Because Overeem, if I remember correctly, was just kind of like doing his shelling thing and Sakai had the idea with the uppercut and it got through really consistently because Overeem's uh, guard is like not responsive at all. He just stands on the fence and uh, relies on opponents not really having a good shot selection there because they're heavyweights. Mm-hmm. Um, Rosenstrike was able to get to his body from there. That's like the biggest liability that you see in Overeem generally is that he's willing to just back straight to the fence and shell up uh, but somehow he's been like leaning on his chin against Sakai and uh, Walt Harris which is like the weirdest thing for Alistair Overeem to lean on makes absolutely no sense considering all the mileage he's taken although in like a perverse way it kind of does make sense because it's taken like either sustained like several big shots from blades or like absolutely massive singular shots to kill him so I guess it follows that like He'd take a big puncher to put him out, but also it's a lot of big punchers have put him out. So Overeem's like in a weird spot where I think he acknowledges that his best route is the clinch and top control, but he still doesn't have the defense in the pocket to um, to like enforce it unless he's like in serious trouble and guys just rush him. So he's trying to bait guys into rushing, clinch them, and then take them down, which seems to be, it's like a, as weird as it is, it's a more coherent process than a lot of heavyweights have. It's just also really risky with Overeem's lack of defense on the inside. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't... I think a really powerful top-control grappler is pretty bad for Alexander Volkov. But I don't know how much longer Overeem's going to be doing this. Right. And that's probably a question that people have been asking themselves for like 20 years since <laughs> <laughs> he got knocked out by like chuck liddell so yeah, how long can he do this yeah like oh he's so young he's already getting knocked out like what's gonna happen he's taking a lot of damage he's cut a lot of weight for like heavyweight whatever and now it's 2021 it's gonna be on a he's already on a two fight win streak he's got four wins in his last five he's just cruising uh <laughs> yeah he he's weird i just recorded my podcast before this and i was talking about how his durability is definitely a suspect but it's like the same level of suspect that it's been for a decade. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, ever since he got into the UFC, it's been about the same. Um, which is really funny, just considering that he's been knocked out in all of his losses. All uh, of his UFC losses are knockouts. How many is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. He's been knocked out seven times in the past ten years. Uh, on top of all the other times he's been knocked out in MMA. And all the times he's been knocked out in kickboxing, I don't know how many that is, but this guy's been knocked out a lot, and like that's not counting like practice or whatever, so something is going on with this dude. He needs to be studied in a lab. Uh, 
my only theory is that he uses the the Wim Hof method. Do you know that? Oh yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah. yeah. It's like a breathing technique. It's really not anything special that this guy invented or anything like that. He just basically repurposed um, like breath work from from likely from other cultures who yeah like uh, yoga and stuff that, who aren't that white. happens yeah it's just the white man <laughs> stealing Asian culture um, but he, he branded it it's the Wim Hof method and uh, yeah it's just a breath work that lets him you know uh, endure extreme temperatures and hold his breath for a super long time and stuff like that um, I know Overeem got into it a few years ago uh, around when he became Econo Reem and maybe it regrows your chin <laughs> the Calcureem Wolverine. Uh, but yeah, he's he's still doing it. I don't really get it. Uh, will he ever fall off entirely? Uh, let's find out. Um, but yeah, is is Alexander Volkov the kind of guy who can exploit a lot of his usual issues? I'm thinking back to times where he's been blitzier. Because uh, a lot of the times I, when I think of Volkov, I think of him, you know, just chipping away slowly with long weapons at, at mid range. Because you know that's he can win most of the time there. Uh, but I think about, like, Derek Lewis, like, that fight, and uh, probably another one where he uh, he was, like, doing some marching combinations and working in the knees and kicking the body up close and things of that nature. But, like, is that a normal part of his game, or is that more like, oh, I got you, time to swarm? I think it's probably the second one, just because Lewis was, like, insanely vulnerable for the entire fight. He got hurt to the body pretty early, if I remember correctly, and Volkov was just beating on him. Uh, against, like, Greg Hardy, which is a weird, weird fight, uh, Volkov wasn't really that comfortable in the pocket at all, and that's pretty bad against Hardy, because Hardy's not good in the pocket at all. Um, Volkov was just doing these, like, really long, ugly leans away from every time uh, Hardy would, like, engage him, and it, it felt like a fight where Volkov would get knocked out, and he just avoided it by the fight, like, running out, if that makes sense. Uh, he eventually took over with all the body work. Uh, that, that lead leg body kick is one thing that he likes a lot, I think. Um, but... He's also, there are a lot of vulnerabilities in Volkov's game that I think are kind of covered up by being, like, unique for a heavyweight and being able to put volume on guys more than other heavyweights can. And historically, volume isn't really the way to beat Alistair Overeem. Um, as I mentioned before, it's been, like, Overeem can compete at mid-range with basically anyone mm-hmm. um, at heavyweight. Not, not anyone, at heavyweight. Uh, and I think if Volkov has, like, a... I think Volkov's height is going to be interesting in this fight, mostly because of the clinch, where Overeem is a very collar tie uh, clinch fighter. He did that a lot to, like, Mark Hunt, and being taller tends to, like, limit that a little bit. So I think the clinch might be a, a way for uh, Volkov to, like, stall a little bit, or at least not take as much damage as Overeem opponents do. It's just that at range, I'm not really sure, because I feel like Volkov isn't an awful fighter when he's given his room. Mm-hmm. Like, he isn't an awful, like, boxer when he's given his room. He can, like, punch in combination sometimes. It's just that when you drive him back. So I think it's going to take, like, if Overeem going to shut Volkov out, I think it's going to take something pretty concerted where he pushes Volkov back more aggressively than he's used to. And to his credit, that's kind of what he did against Sakai, where he just, like, pushed forward until Sakai swing, swung at him and then just backed off and let Sakai exhaust himself on his guard and then just kept walking forward again. That's, like, not something I'd want to see him do against Volkov, because I don't want to see him do that against anybody. But it's also not, like, the most awful strategic way to deal with Volkov, just push him back at all costs and, like, not get hit as hard as you can. Mm-hmm. So it's weird. I think Overeem can afford to walk through Volkov's shots just because Volkov tends to be a volume puncher. But, you know, obviously that has the... Um, 
the drawback of Overeem. His durability is probably, like, it's going to go on the lamb any second. So that's, like, tough to trust Overeem with. But, like, in the form of his last fight, I think he could give Volkov a decent amount of trouble. I think the issue is, A, the clinch, and B, the fact that Volkov is, like, super long and at least somewhat survivable on the ground, which means that Overeem is probably going to, like, try to wrestle him, not get anywhere a couple times. Um, not in the takedown itself. Like, Volkov got taken down in 10 seconds by Fabrizio Verdum, but on the ground, it could be a little bit tough just because of Volkov's length and ability to just stall from positions, where, like, Overeem kind of gassed in that kind of fight against Jarzinho Rosenstroik. This is a really weird fight. I don't really know which way I'm leaning. Yeah, with regard to the grappling, I, I think of the Verdum fight for Volkov, and if I recall correctly, Volkov was doing a good, jo- a good job scrambling with him, and Verdum was being pretty risky with his transitions. Like, he was playing a lot of deep half. I don't remember how he ended up on his back, but I think he was, like, going for subs, and then once he was on his back, he was playing deep half, and Volkov, like, was able to navigate it. Uh, <laughs> as, you know, compared to Gustafsson, <laughs> who did not play that correctly and uh, got submitted. But, yeah, so, so Volkov can definitely, as you said, survive on the ground. But I think, you know, with Overeem, he plays more traditional positions. Like, he's, he's cool with, you know, more static. Um, his ground hands a lot better than Verdum's. Uh, he stacks yeah. a lot, which could be tricky against someone tall like that. Uh, but, yeah, I don't know. I, I think I actually trust him more to have, like, a ground control performance than Verdum's because Verdum doesn't really play ground control very often. Um, he's usually trying to pass quickly and, and, and move on to things because, you know, he can. <laughs> so why not? Whereas Overeem's actually, his game is kind of optimized for MMA on the ground. Yeah, like leaping onto arm bars for the back. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, which is one of my favorite things to do, but I probably wouldn't do it in an MMA fight. But, uh, yeah, so with regard to the grappling, I think it could definitely go Overeem's way. Mm-hmm. I just need to see a consistent pattern for getting there. Uh I, the Volkov fight I've watched the most is the Curtis Blades fight. Not because of Volkov, but because of Blade. <laughs> and that's one where I don't know... Well, first of all, Overeem and Blades train together. So consider that first. Um, the other thing is I don't know if Overeem can do exactly what Blades did. Because what Blades did was came in and out of range, showed him his jab a lot... Um, and basically just like use the, the fainting threat of a jab and a one-two and use that and level change with it to set up all his doubles. So basically it was just doubles and it was all off of that one thing. But because he was able to vary it so much and he got, uh, you know, got Volkov thinking about it and the speed of his entries were uh, so significant, there was a lot of like attribute threat there plus the wrestling threat where he had Volkov freezing up and throwing counters when he wanted to and, and opening up his hips. Uh, so first of all, Overeem, not really that guy. <laughs> like he's not uh, gonna you know live on a one-two and you know, be bouncing in and out like that. Probably. Um, the other thing is that he doesn't really shoot leg attacks. You know, most of his takedowns come on the cage or from clinch positions. And uh, even when he does start to advance, it's usually behind hooks. He's trying usually trying to hook his way into collar ties, uh, and then he starts beating people up from there. Um, but he could definitely do that. I just need to think of. Has Volkov, does Volkov like in, have intercepting counter tools if people try to charge in him? Probably not, right? That's why not he's really, no. been pushed back by Tim Johnson. <laughs> Definitely lost. It's et that fight, by the way. Right, right. So I guess it is replicable for Overeem to do that to him. Um, but he is very durable, Volkov is, and Overeem isn't. So 
can he finish him by doing that within the first couple of rounds? Or when things get longer and sloppier, is Volkov going to find his chance to, to end it? I guess that's exactly what you said, but I just came around it a different way. <laughs> yeah, you said it a smarter way, I think. No, I don't uh, think so. But, yeah, I mean, I think if we're just going on, like, physical attributes, which tends to be, like, a decent way to pick heavyweight fights, especially with, like, old people, it's just, like... If you keep picking against Overeem, you're going to be wrong sometimes, but you're eventually going to be very, very right at this point of, at this point in his career where you're just yeah. like, okay, Overeem's old and he's eventually going to get knocked out. Okay, you're wrong a couple times with Sakai and um, Harris, but you are almost right. And, you know, just keep picking that way. And it's, it's going to be right at some point, which means I think I really want to trust Overeem because I feel like he's fighting smart fights in a way that I think a lot of heavyweights don't. At least, like, he's aware of his attributes, I think. Where, I think, like, if Overeem was really, really fragile, he, or at least in comparison to his opponent, like, he fought Mark Hunt in a really smart way, for instance, and I know that was, like, three or four years ago. But even against Harris, he was really aggressive wrestling uh, early when he got hurt. Uh, Sakai, he seemed to go to the same takedown a couple times when Sakai was vulnerable to that, like, really gross, ugly cutback. Uh, which, like, made Ryan super mad because Sakai basically just, like, fell to his back. But, like, Overeem can pick up on tendencies and win with them. And I think Volkov might be a bit too, like, pressurable and takedownable for Overeem to just, like, not try anything with that. Mm-hmm. But he just doesn't have margin whatsoever. Like, it, it's basically the same issue with picking Overeem against anyone. Is that, like, for instance, I think I picked him against Walt Harris, but... You know, we saw the issue in that fight with picking Overeem over Walt Harris, which is that he could just die in round one. And Volkov isn't as much of a, of a threat in that sense, but Volkov, if he survives to, like, round three, it's going to be on Overeem not to gas the way he did in, like, the last couple seconds of the um, of the Rosenstroik fight, where Volkov is much more of an output threat than Rosenstroik. Um, someone who's probably going to hit the body in space a little bit more, not as committed to probably swarming on, swarming on him on the fence. So I'm not really sure. I know. That's okay. Are you making a pick? Yeah. Uh, fuck it. I'll go with Overeem. Who cares? Okay. I'll, I'll do that too. That's kind of how I'm feeling. Uh, yeah. Having like a reason to, you know, imagine what the game would be to beat someone over a long fight versus just not trusting them to do it the whole time. I feel like the thing that I can see should be the yeah. one I go with, um, with a with a large caveat. So that's that's that fight. I don't think it's super complex and. I definitely question putting the heavyweights in the main event. Um, whereas Sandhig and Edgar, it would be that's the perfect fight to make five rounds. Absolutely. Um, but I digress. So let's let's do that one. Um, I I talked about this one a little bit that it's kind of screwed up that Edgar is in this position <laughs> because Sandhagen <laughs> was just a number one contender bout with uh, Aljamain Sterling. It ends immediately, and he comes back against Morais, who is worse than he used to be. But not probably not as bad as he was in the font fight. Not as shot yeah, definitely. in terms of durability. So still a decent win uh, for Sandhagen. So he's like at least like a notch below his number one contender fight. Like he's in position for another one. And he has Edgar, who probably didn't win the Munoz fight, and then besides that was on a two fight losing streak at featherweight. And before that, he was coming off one win where he didn't look so great after getting knocked out. So it's like. Is he really in position to be doing this when Bantamweight has like plenty of guys who should be trying to climb the ladder and get up there? Um, but then, I'm, on the other hand, who who would Sandhagen be fighting, in your opinion? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't hate Sanhagen Edgar as a booking, but that's only if you like actually gave uh, Edgar the Munoz fight, which like you you shouldn't, as you mentioned. Um, there, I wouldn't hate Sanhagen versus Garbrandt at this stage, but it's also that's a dangerous fight for Sanhagen for one, and secondly, Garbrandt is doing like flyweight things allegedly, maybe, mm-hmm. and probably won't fight other contenders right after a win. It's like every time he gets a win, he's just gonna walk into a title shot. So, I mean. I guess yeah. it makes sense that Edgar's just getting this opportunity for, like, scraping a win and being game. But even something like Sanhagen versus Rob Font might make a little bit more sense. Right. Um, but that said, I think Edgar can make this a, a really messy fight, way messier than the uh, than the odds imply. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's like, double why I don't like it. One, it, it feels a little undeserved. And two, it's a really tough fight for Sanhagen. So he has to take this unnecessary risk and fight. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say fight down in competition a little bit. Not that Edgar isn't like good enough to beat him. That's the point. He is good enough to beat him, but you know <laughs> he shouldn't he shouldn't have to. He should be in you know a fight that means more and isn't bad for him. So with regard to it being bad for him, uh, Frankie Edgar is doing a pretty good job. Well, first of all, his durability looked absolutely fine versus Munoz. Did he get rocked once? I can't think of a time he got rocked. He got hit clean. Yeah, he got hit a lot. But... Yeah, but he didn't get, you know, it wasn't hurting him, and Munoz does hit hard, so that concerned me as a person who was expecting <laughs> Edgar to be faded. <laughs> uh, not that, like, I hate him or anything. I, I used to, he used to be my favorite fighter, but um, I don't know. I just, I thought that this, it was, he was on the downslide, and here he is, you know, having a it pretty good fight. It just makes Zombie look way too good if he's not faded. <laughs> right. Right, <laughs> that's that's a weird thing for sure. Um, but yeah, maybe he just can't take featherweight power anymore. I just keep logically expecting people who are looking chinny at a weight class, who are moving down to another weight, to have a worse chin at the lower weight because they're cutting more weight, and that should that should work. But then it's not happening, so maybe the the smaller people not hitting as hard is more important. I don't know. I don't know how to do that math, but. Yeah, it's probably um, case by case. I mean, Edgar's yeah. always been super durable and isn't really cutting that much weight for uh, for 135, I don't think. That's true. That's a good point. But yeah, so Edgar looked capable still as a wrestler versus Sandhagen uh, and versus Munoz, who is one of the most difficult fighters to wrestle in, in the sport, I would say. Um, very, very good wrestler. And he was, you know, he was getting to his legs reactively for the most part. And, you know, Munoz was getting his hips back and pulling him up, and Edgar was quickly trying to transition from the legs to, like, seatbelt and get to the rear standing positions. And Munoz was getting him off from there, but he was getting to the legs and transitioning pretty easily, like, the two or three times it happened. And that's, like, the exact thing that people worry about with Corey Sandhagen (laughs) with regard to his defensive wrestling, that he's a good scrambler, but he is mostly a scrambler. Like, he... He wants to keep the fight moving. He wants to keep it fluid and flowing. So he doesn't like to stick in certain grappling positions. He wants to start moving immediately. So he, sometimes he kind of cheats the defense and tries to get to a position where he can just disengage entirely. Like fighting someone off of a single and ending up in like over-unders doesn't sit well with him versus, <laughs> you know, spinning off to rear standing and then fighting hands and uh, getting away from there. Or if he can't do it, like try to Granby or Funk or something, like, you know, do something to get an entirely new position or turn it into offense. It's just a little bit of impatience that works for his style usually. But this is one, one of the best grapplers in the UFC. And Frank Yeager, one of the best top games. Uh, at least a featherweight he was. Uh, it's probably still true. And yeah. then you also have, you know, a guy who 
is very good at setting up his takedowns and getting to your legs, and you're going to have to be able to deal with those situations, unless Edgar really is, you know, not durable enough to take a few shots from Sandhagen, because he's going to get his licks in before Edgar can start wrestling, but... Um, so yeah, that that's definitely concerning. But just with regard to the striking matchup, how do, how does this work out for Corey Sandhagen? Uh, I think it goes pretty well, just because I didn't really like um, Ed, well Edgar's offensive striking actually looked pretty good against Munoz in my opinion, because Munoz does a lot of like the static shelling where Edgar was able to work around it with his combinations. But I think Sandhagen extends the distance and uh, he has a lot of success jabbing and kicking Edgar, which is one way that I think Edgar uh, his Blitzy, um, so Sanhagen isn't much of a counterpuncher, mm-hmm. which could work because Edgar's like blitzing that's generally like the concern with it. Like guys like Aldo and even Ortega were able to intercept his blitzes over and over. But I also think Edgar can probably get stuck out of range by Sanhagen if like Sanhagen, you know, jabs and ki- instead of Munoz trying to compress the range and walking into combinations, uh, Sanhagen's going to extend it a little bit, try to feint his blitzes out and jab him. Uh, I like Sanhagen's kicking game a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does a nice job shifting through his punches to kick. Uh, he's not a great leg kicker. I've seen him leg kick before, but it's not like a, a big part of his game. Most of it, it's the body kicking. His leg kicking is like kind of just empty activity, so I don't think that's going to be one thing that like really punishes the lateral activity of Edgar, but it is something that can help him like line up, line attacks up. Um, I think... Sanhagen isn't the kind to like really take advantage of a big durability decrease in Frankie Edgar because he's not like a big puncher really like he's hurt people with punches and he can like set his punches up well but it's not he hasn't like really hurt guys with singular shots aside from that big spinning wheel kick but even that was like at the end of a prolonged campaign Mm -hmm. on Marlon Moraes so I don't know it's I think Sanhagen wins on the feet pretty convincingly and consistently it's just that the takedown threat kind of messes that up because like if Edgar just shoots every time Sanhagen jabs, for instance, like that's not generally a good way to get takedowns because the hips are still like bladed when you jab. But mm-hmm. it's also something where like Sanhagen might just pull a guillotine or like try to Granby, which would like that gives Edgar the opportunities that he needs. And I think it's worth noting that Edgar's last big top control performance was against Yaya Rodriguez, mm-hmm. who's like pretty much completely incompetent as a bottom player <laughs> and as a wrestler. Um, and like in, in several other places, especially in comparison to Corey Sanhagen, who's genuinely very, very good. But it's also something where I think Sanhagen's aggression, as you mentioned, is probably going to get him into trouble, especially over three rounds. Because I think if this was five rounds, I'd be able to trust Sanhagen to like eventually get, um, like figure out answers to Edgar's takedowns and the striking, where he'd be like, you know, uppercut and knee, that kind of thing. In three rounds, I feel like the margin's pretty thin. I was thinking and I have two new points that I forgot about uh one I remembered how they ended up in those rear standing positions it was because Munoz was limp legging out of the singles and Edgar was like chasing him and grabbing rear standing when he turned away to limp leg so maybe this time (laughs) Sandhagen's defense you know being not great will actually help him avoid that but I think that doesn't that logic doesn't really check out uh and also if you remember the Cubs Swanson rematch Edgar went 0 for 9, and it was basically all just Swanson, you know, wizard post-limp legging out of his singles. So yeah. if they watch tape, they should see that that's a thing. Um, and it could end up looking a lot like uh, Holloway versus Edgar, where Holloway decided not to pressure and just kind of gave a little bit of space and made Edgar come in. Although Holloway was, like, counterpunching him and interrupting him, and that, like you said, that's not really part of Sandhagen's game, but 
uh, kind of a mix of that fight and <laughs> whatever Sanhagen's going to come up with. But I, I could see this being like uncomfortably close and Edgar getting a lot of takedowns, but also like getting outstruck and it just being really messy and ugly and uncomfortable if you want Sanhagen to win. Uh, and exciting if you want Edgar to win. I could see I could see it actually being a very competitive fight, which I think is probably what will happen. Um, here's a, a weird question. Have we seen anyone besides, like, Aldo, and even then I can't specifically remember times he did it, like, go after Edgar's body? I don't really believe so. Uh, like Max barely did, right? Yeah, Max had, like, a couple left hooks to the body as he was circling off and that uh, big spinning kick, but not really anything, like, consistent. It, overall, that was one of uh, Max's, like, more subdued, subdued performances, um, which is kind of weird because I think if Edgar's, like, able to limit Sanhagen's volume the same way with his counterpunching, it'd be interesting. But also Sanhagen's a lot more animated than Holloway was in that fight, so it might make him struggle to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see. Pedro... Casey, Holloway didn't really do it. Um, yeah, I can't really see any prolific body punchers here aside from Aldo. Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think if Sanhagen like, tries to leap in with that big left hook to the body as he does often, he might just get reactive shotted. Yeah, true. And Edgar's counterpunching is like generally kind of threatening enough that guys don't really want to like step in with the, uh, the body work that often. But, you know, Sanhagen's reckless enough to do that. You know, Shrum, I, uh, I think this is a weird fight, and I don't have that much more to say about it. Yeah, I'm probably going to go with Sanhagen on, like, youth, and, I mean, we have seen Sanhagen scram scramble out from solid top players like Rafael Asuncao, so, I mean, I'll probably just go with him on that, but it's a uh, it's an interesting fight. One, I don't have a strong lean on. Yeah, I'm not even going to make a pick. I don't want to. <laughs> Deal with it. Um, now we can get to the fight that, that's much more compelling. We have, on a three-fight losing streak, Marion Renault. All right. She is uh, okay. she is 43 years old. She's on a three-fight losing streak. All decisions. has not been finished. Has never been finished in her pro career. Shuram. Okay. Nice. And on the other side, we have uh, Macy Chiasson. I think I said that right. Who is not 40. She is, in fact, under 30. And she's 6-1. And, and she's a... Uh, Bounce back after her first loss to Lena Landsberg. Do you have a single solitary thing to say about this fight? No. Uh, <laughs> based on what you just said, I guess Chazon wins. But who, who cares, like, whatsoever? Yeah, I don't remember what Macy does. But I remember people thinking that she could be pretty good. And uh, she has knocked some people out. And for women's MMA, that's pretty cool. So, uh, I guess I hope she wins. And I think there's a Twitter mutual that trains with her. I don't remember who, though. So, I don't know. I just guess in general, I'll, I'll root for her. Plus, I think Renault said something really dumb recently and got people mad at her. And she's, a, like, a high school gym teacher or, like, a health teacher. And it was something about health. It might have been, like, COVID-related or mask-related. So, um, yeah. Not great. Not a great look. So, that's, that's my thoughts on that fight. Here's a good one. All right. Pantoja versus Cape. Take, take it away, Shuram. What do you got? Uh, yeah, I mean, Pantoja's state kind of worries me at this stage. Um, I don't know a ton about Cape. I know he beat um, Kaya Sakura, which is pretty impressive. Um, he did. Yeah, I mean, he looks like a pretty decent puncher, solid boxer in exchanges. Uh, pretty grapplable. I believe he lost to Lucas Sasaki, which is one reason why, like, Ryan will never, ever believe in him. <laughs> but, 
Yeah, he looks like a dangerous fight. And I think Pantoja is... I think if Pantoja pursues grappling really hard in this fight, it could look relatively easy for him. Um, but I also don't really know where Pantoja's at because he gassed out pretty hard against um, Askar Askarov. And that was a pretty good fight. I think Pantoja... I remember Pantoja having like an outside argument to winning, but... It was uh, it was pretty concerning how he gassed out at the end, and he's overall taken a ton of damage lately with um, the Davison Figueredo fight, which was pretty one sided if it was competitive and in spots. Um, that Askarov fight, and even like the Schnell fight where he took some shots, even though it was short. Um, if I were to go just off like state, I'd say Pantoja is like relatively close to being done for being in a small division, uh, where he's like you know not super young, not super fresh in his career and taken some decent damage. But, uh, I mean, I think he has a clear enough route here against Cape that I'll have to favor him until I see Cape, like, defend the takedowns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Cape can wrestle a little bit, and he can wrestle offensively a little bit as well. I think he's been spending time at Tiger Moisai. I'm pretty sure he, he was in That's good. Um, I'm not positive about that, but <laughs> I'm pretty <laughs> sure he's been training at, like, big, legit gyms, which is good. And, uh, I mean, Pantoja is actually only 30, and, but you think about, like, things that have happened in his fights. Uh, the Figueredo fight was definitely a war, and he tends to make every fight a war. Um, it's, uh, he's not, like, faded or anything, I think. I think it's just he always kind of looks like a zombie um, in his <laughs> fights. But, yeah, uh, I, I talked about him on, on the wrestling podcast a little bit. His game's pretty disconnected. Um, he's, like, I'd say he's good everywhere. He's not, like, he's not bad on his feet. He's pretty effective, and... Um, can definitely hang in the pocket and has a lot of power and grit and uh, likes to strike for sure. I think he's got a powerful kicking game as well, even though it's not you know, super well implemented. Um, so he, he's, he's decent. Uh, obviously, his defense is the issue, and also like, just the depth of his attack. Where his wrestling, I feel like he has a good reactive shot. He, he's definitely good at like level changing and um, like turning the corner on his shots to transition to the back faster. He was doing that before, before Habib was. Um, <laughs> not like he invented it, but just I'm just saying. <laughs> he did invent it. He invented it. He invented turning the corner on your double. But uh, yeah, he, he's pretty good there. I don't remember how solid he is at like training takedowns in the cage or anything like that. It's not he's capable of reactive shots. He's capable of normal, normal takedowns. And he probably has that BJJ guy single leg where he can you know, uh, what you call it? Damn, crack down, crack down to the hip and try to finish oh, yeah. over that. Um, you can probably do that. I don't remember. I'm just guessing. <laughs> uh, but I watched some Cape today, and he's pretty interesting. Um, very bursty. His offense is very bursty. Uh, he does cover a lot of distance on it. It can be a little sloppy. He can chase sometimes. Um, a lot of in-and-out bouncing. And that, to me, reads like reactive takedown. Um, just the way that, that he chooses to do his offense and just that he's not like a lights-out defensive grappler or wrestler. Um, so that worries me. Uh, but on the other hand, I'd be worried if I was Pantoja because Pantoja will probably not look to take him down right away. And he's going to try to hit him hard. And Cape is pretty good at pulling people in, uh, thinking that he's there in range, being a little bit out of range, and then like messing with their timing based on his bouncing and then bursting in and hitting the counter. So that's how he knocked out Asakura. But even before that, he was he was busting him up because uh, Asakura just was a little off every time. Uh, measuring like the speed and distance of the exchanges and Cape's shot selection is pretty good. Uh, he does a lot of shifting. He does a lot of like uh, like offensive pivots, 
like coming in off an angle like the dart and like turning and, and hitting you again. That's how he knocked out Mizugaki. Um, See, so he he has some cool looks on offense, even if it, a lot of it is just like athleting people. He he <laughs> athletes people in a smart way. Uh, he definitely uh, knows how to exploit you know, speed differentials and power differentials and things of that nature. So he's a pretty smart fighter in a way. Um, so I think there's definitely a, a high chance that he clips Pantoja pretty early, but just because Pantoja isn't like fragile <laughs> at all and he could take a, a pretty serious beating um i would say he would need to keep the fight standing for the majority of the fight for this to go well for him um and may, you know maybe pantoja will have a hard time pressuring him because he is not terrible off the back foot um he kind of thrives when people are trying to chase him down and uh you know if pantoja decides that he needs to pressure and doesn't you know let cape come to him and like just try to kick him on the outside and, and make him extend and, and reactive takedown uh, he could actually have a pretty rough fight if he doesn't do that. So I think this one's pretty interesting, but I think just based on one size, I think that Pantoja's a decent amount bigger than him. I'm not sure about that, actually, because Ryzen doesn't have... They do have actual flyweights. Isn't there, aren't there flyweights, bantamweights? Yeah, I think so. So The weight-cutting stuff makes it so all weird. He's been fighting up a weight, but then, like, Horiguchi is a flyweight. Is a flyweight. But what about Asakura? Like size wise, he looks about the same size, a little taller, but thinner. Yeah, none guys. of them look like super far apart in terms of size. So I think all of them are like 125ers under UFC weight cutting. Yeah. On the other hand, Pantoja looks big to me for flyweight. And he looked a good size versus Figueredo, who is very big for the weight. Yeah. Um, I think that might be a bit of an issue, just like a big guy grappling you. If you look, think about the Sasaki fight, that's basically what that was. Um, but I don't know. I think. Uh, with, with less focus on being the grappler in the fight, Pantoja could kind of make it harder for himself than it needs to be. And I think Cape definitely has a future. I mean, flyweight's pretty thin right now, so he'll be a ranked flyweight very soon. But he could definitely lose this one, and I'm, I'm just going to pick Pantoja for now. Yeah, I mean, I think Cape against any striker is probably going to be fun at the very least. I'd like to see him against, like, even a Figueredo. I don't think that's completely uninteresting, mm-hmm. as long as Figueredo doesn't just, you know monster him on the ground which is possible yeah but yeah I mean, i'm excited for cape they should book him against the other figueredo his brother and then like advertise it like oh it's ryzen versus the ufc uh cape versus figueredo <laughs> but then you know people think it's davison but it's actually francisco it's, you can take that very take that idea ufc there you go um <laughs> sneaky snake you cool to move on to the next one uh yeah you like Andre Ewell, so tell me why you like Andre Ewell. I'm uh, more like fine with Andre Ewell <laughs> from like a from like a bantamweight journeyman perspective. I think he's done like so. The way that bantamweight works is that like there are a ton of guys who are genuinely decent and solid at some things, and the reason that they tend to fall apart is that there are like real actual prospects that are good at other things. If that makes sense. So like Andre Ewell, he's kind of like a boxer in an MMA fighter's world where he does, like, this fun southpaw counterpunching stuff. He's decent off his lead hand, where he does, like, jabbing and right-hooking off it. Um, against Erwin Rivera, whose name should not be spoken ever again, but in that <laughs> fight, um, Ewell did some fun stuff with, like, shifting, where he, like, counterpunched the left hand, shift through to body shots. Um, his issue has generally been cardio for one and grappling for another. Or, like, he, I think he's used to being, like, a round one finisher on the regionals, uh, which makes sense because he's like blazing fast and really, really long. So it makes sense they could like catch guys just backing off when they weren't expecting to be hit. But at 
in the UFC against like really durable guys, uh, he's had trouble. Uh, Nathaniel Wood actually did a really nice job taking Ewell's game apart at the seams where he'd pressure him. And Ewell is a really in and out sort of fighter who needs his space. He works out of a really bladed stance. Um, so Wood was able to just compress it, box him up when um, Ewell was like, Ewell's not a great outfighter, he's pretty linear. So Wood was able to just pressure him to the fence, make him shorten his stance and beat him up from there. And of course, grapple him from on top where Ewell doesn't really have um, a bottom game or any real takedown defense apart from being long. Which is where I think he's going to run into, well, obviously, where he's going to run into trouble against Cody Stammen. Um, Ed, you wrote an article on Cody Stammen. What's his game? I did. I wrote an article on Cody Stammen for a stupid reason. <laughs> because I, <laughs> I liked his uh, the way he was boxing in a fight versus, I think it was Brian Kelleher. I liked the way he was boxing Brian Kelleher. Because it, it so clearly looked to me that if he wanted to throw some leg attacks in there and shoot doubles or singles... The way his boxing was set up, he could throw it in wherever he wanted. Like it was, it was perfectly setting the stage for leg attacks. But Kelleher is a pretty good transitional sub threat, and uh, he ended up taking him down in some different situations in that fight. But I'm like, okay, like I think Stamen has figured out his approach on the feet to be a good wrestle boxer. And then he fought Jimmy Rivera, who is the hardest man to wrestle at 135 besides uh, Munoz, uh, Munoz probably. Um, yeah. Aljamain Sterling did not take him down once in like a million attempts like that fight was weird but he did not take him down um but he's just a fire hydrant so when you're the guy that like kind of needs a couple of takedowns to win your fight jimmy rivera is probably not the guy um to fight but yeah so he didn't look quite as good as you would expect based on that trajectory but again the opponent specific thing was probably tough for him plus it's a good counter puncher a bit of a nightmarish matchup overall and now he has someone who is not a good wrestler but a very different kind of striker that will definitely test how I don't know composed he is on his feet um, he can't pressure stupidly um, if you want to see someone being dumb trying to pressure Andre Ewell I think the Marlon Chito Vera fight is a good one in the very beginning for a while Chito like was not being good about it first of all he was trying to like be the outfighter and that actually gave him some cooler looks than his pressure just because he, he was able to do that cool outside slip. Uh, to the arm triangle. Counter into the arm triangle, like the head and arm catch, which is dope. Uh, I liked that. But otherwise, it wasn't working that well for him because his reactions just aren't what they think they are. Um, and we saw that against Aldo, too. Like, waiting on people is not a good idea for Cheeto. Uh, and then, you know, when he pressures, that's usually his game. But then when he was pressuring, it was mostly, like, dumb linear charges, and he was coming up behind a high guard and, like, Yule was having him run into the fence and like just was matadoring him uh, and getting out of the way and showed a lot of good lateral movement and a lot of good long tools to make it difficult to get close to him in the first place. So Stamen, uh, this is at 135, yeah? Yeah. Stamen's a good size for 135. He did just fight at 145, but that was Rivera, who's also a bantamweight. Um, I think the Kelleher fight was also a featherweight, uh, but that's another bantamweight. <laughs> yeah, also Rivera was on like four days notice or something. Right, right. So he's definitely a bantamweight, a uh, good size of the division. I don't think he's, like, way shorter than Ewell, but he does have short arms. So that's kind of a weird matchup already. Um, the things I liked about his performance versus Kelleher was a lot of level changing. Uh, a lot of level changing and just having a good one, too. Um, and I talked about it in the Curry Displays little section here when we're talking about Volkov. That's really most of what a wrestler needs <laughs> to get some good entries going. Is like just build a competent game around level changing feints and one twos, and you can set up most of your takedowns against pretty much anyone. Um, 
you know, because the level of anti-wrestling and defensive wrestling isn't all that high in MMA. Uh, so I like that for him, and I'm not really sure how Yule deals with people hitting his body or giving them that look. I just assume that his craft won't be as on point against someone who he knows is trying to grapple him. It usually messes people up. Um, they, they, they aren't quite as good at doing their outfighter tactics when they know there's grappling involved. Um, I don't know. And Stamen also has a kicking game, so I think that just you know, being outlengthed on the arms isn't going to completely shut down his striking. He's going to be able to kick with him and you know, hang at least in, in exchanges at mid-range and, and make it a little more compelling for Ewell to lead a little bit. And, you know, it's just going to mix up where the ranges are, I think. So I don't think it's that crazy difficult of a fight for Stamen. Obviously, the, the thing is, like, okay, if he can get to his wrestling, he's going to win because Ewell's just not that much of a grappler. And, you know, Stamen isn't a prolific top player. Obviously, uh, <laughs> there's been fights where he's done a lot of laying uh, in top <laughs> position, but, I mean, that that is winning. Um, yeah, that's going to work against Ewell. Like, regardless of how much you like it. Uh, it, it is a way to win fights, so it'll probably work, and I think he'll probably be able to take him down if you watch his fights against good wrestlers. I mean, he holds up, man. Like, him and Aljo were going back and forth, um, really competitive wrestling exchanges, so uh, yeah. I, I like Stamen in this one. I'm going to go ahead and lock that one in. Yeah, I don't really see a route for Yule if Stamen wrestles actively. Uh, I think Yule could have some moments just because of the length difference, where, like, Yule is covers like half of the entire cage every time he throws a one-two. Uh, and that does tend to surprise people where like he can just cover a ton of distance with that. And Stamen probably isn't going to just, you know, pressure him super hard. Stamen uh, played Jimmy Rivera on the back foot, which is pretty interesting. It worked out decently well in terms of not giving Rivera the opportunities that he needed to look super, super good. But either way, like whether Stamen decides to like draw him on to takedowns or shoot him on the fence, it's, it's going to work. Uh, so I kind of hope Ewell looks good because he's, he's fun. But uh, this is a fight where he's probably going to look pretty bad. Fun. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to let you say all the things because this is the ultimate Shriram matchup. Like <laughs> any card, I can't imagine a fight right now that you can make that is, that is more appealing to you. Um, so go ahead and talk about Carlos Diego Fajaya versus Benil Dariush. Uh, right, so this is a rematch. Uh, Dariush did a really nice job in the first fight, mostly on the ground. Oh my god, it is. Uh, yeah, you guys, you haven't seen uh, the first one? I don't remember that happening. Wow. Yeah, yeah it's one of Dariush's better names. Dariush's face is like, pretty much in everyone. That was on the uh, the Mendez Aldo 2 card. Wow, I don't remember that at all. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> it was uh, right after Fajeda beat Nijum, and after Dariush lost to Nijum. So Fajeda was like a minus 200-something, I think and uh, Dariush won, like the king he is. So it was a pretty interesting fight, I think. Uh, Dariush did a nice job controlling the lead hand and kicking through the open side, and Fajeda struggled on the bottom against someone who was really good on top. But also, this is a different fight because uh, CDF has become a really defined pressure pace fighter where um, Dariush is looking... I wouldn't... There was a point where I thought Dariush was pretty much done. It was around... Moises, I think, where um, he just lost to Hernandez. Uh, he was he didn't have the Barbosa loss too far off, and he was struggling a lot against Tiago Moises' striking, where he would like get hit really hard, get into a clinch, take him down, and lie on him for like the rest of the round. So you know we're like, okay, this guy's he's going to be able to drag out veteran wins, but he's not really going to be able to get more impressive wins. And at this point, he's still like getting veteranish wins, but he's getting them more consistently than a veteran should. And um, 
I think CDF, he's going to struggle with CDF mostly because of the pace, I think. Uh, we saw against Evan Dunham that Dariush doesn't really have an impenetrable gas tank. Uh, he, he, his body language looks tired from the first, from like the start of the fight, which is something <laughs> that tricks people. Like he's, you know, constantly like taking deep breaths and like shrugging his shoulders and everything he does looks weirdly labored. But he's like, he's got a decent gas tank. It's just that like when he's forced to exchange and work for a long period of time, it's not necessarily going to work. Another issue is that he's not very good defensively in the pocket, especially against, well, this isn't relevant here, but against other southpaws, we saw against Drew Dober, Dober had a lot of success um, countering the jab and going into combinations off it. And CDF is generally, he's like, he's absolutely pathologically committed to pace and pressure. Uh, we saw against Mirbek Tysimov, Tysimov couldn't back him off at all. It was genuinely freakish uh, mm -hmm. where um, Fajeda would just like pressure him, draw him onto the left hook, or one to him and go into combinations. And Tysimov was like kicking his lead leg on the counter and bombing him in the first round. And Fajeda was just like, okay, I don't really care, uh, and walked him down for the rest. So I don't think Dariush is the puncher to keep CDF off of him. And I don't really know if CDF is going to concede the same kind of fight where like Dariush was able to just kick through the open side and circle away. It's. An interesting fight for some exchanges, I think, and I really hope Dariush looks good. I actually hope he wins. I like CDF a lot. I think he's a top fiver in the UFC, but it's a fight that I think CDF wins relatively consistently at this point in his career, just based on um, where I think Dariush is. Like, for what Benny is, I think he's super, super impressive. It can't be overstated, but what he is is like a middling athlete making a late career run, and that kind of has to come to an end at some point, unfortunately. Yeah, and he's also been, Dariush has been fighting guys who can't enforce any specific kind of game on him. Like, they've been keeping him in the fight, you know what I mean? And he's just yeah. too too smart, <laughs> too, too, too deep in too many different ways that he's going to find offense. Like, even Dober, who I think was, like, beating him up pretty bad. Uh, Very badly. Not being able to stop him from taking him down and grappling him. It's like, okay, like, if you don't have answers in a bunch of different places, uh, he can probably still get you, which is why CDF is so tough because, you know, it's a fellow pressure grappler, one who is younger and, you know, his attributes are better than you right now. And, you know, it's just, it's rough. It's it's, it's rough for him, I think. Um, that, that's how I feel about it. But, you know, Dariush is clever. And uh, am I right to assume that he'll probably be the one who gets pressured in this one? Yeah, I think so. Like, it's, it would be really tough for him to dissuade him. Yeah. Dariush isn't... I mean, even aside from CDF just being committed to pressure more than, like, anyone else, um, Dariush isn't, like, impossible to back up at all, so... Right. Speaking of people that you love, how no. is Michael Johnson going to lose to Clay Guida? How is this going to happen, Shiro? 10-7 round three, probably. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this is, as much as it pains me, Michael Johnson is part of that big mass of fighters that is not worth talking about anymore. Um, you can watch, like, round one of each of his previous fights and assume that he won them dominantly, and then you can watch round three and see how badly that went. So, yeah, I mean, I think Clay Guida is, like, durable enough at this stage that he probably just wins the fight on remaining in it after round two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I was trying. I was talking about this one because Guida's a wrestler. I was talking about this one on my podcast, and I referred to Michael Johnson as maybe so relevant. And I was like, "Wait a minute!" And I looked at his <laughs> record, 
and no, he's not. Um, but <laughs> the reason I thought that was like he's he still like looks good in fights, right? Because you know the Moises fight didn't he have like a really good first round? Yeah, he wrecked his body and pressured him really nicely, and, got and then uh, that heel ankle locked round two. Yeah, uh, what happened in the Stevie Ray fight? Uh, he kicked his ass for two rounds, um, and then got khabibed in round three by Stevie oh Ray. God. It was the worst. I hated it so much. In the Josh Emmett fight, he looked really good there too. Yeah, he he really like there was a point in the middle, like for eight straight minutes in that fight, he just clowned Emmett. And then Emmett started like going to the body a little bit, but he still wasn't like really in the fight until he landed the knockout shot. So okay, so hear me out. Josh Emmett, no, let's throw out, let's throw out Josh Emmett. But Steve Ray and Tiago Moises are worse wrestlers than Clay Guida, even in 2021, I think. So mm-hmm. on one hand, Michael Johnson beating up Clay Guida for two rounds sounds like he should finish him before any of that happens. But on did I already do a, a hand? How many hands do I have? On the third I think hand, you have two hands. <laughs> but the other point is that um, yeah, he's gonna get to wrestling sooner. Um, so is it like is Johnson immediately going to have trouble with that, or is it is it just a cardio thing? Or I think we'll have a maybe have a question answered here. Like if Michael Johnson can lose this fight, it probably means like his flaws are very literal. Yeah, and not like I mean, oh, think... it's a context thing. But you know, if he wins, then I think it kind of lead lends credence to like he has some flaws that it can it make it hard for him to win fights. But he's still good. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like more of a um, a focus thing. Where like if you look at the beginning of like pretty much every one of his fights, even against Elkins, it was really notable how he was like sprawling super, super, super hard. Anytime Elkins was like coming anywhere close to him, he was like throwing himself back. And after a point, he just like stops trying that hard like he has a round where he just hits he's like beats the crap out of guys and like tries to sit on a lead or something or he just like doesn't really um have the focus to stay in the fight it's weird like i think johnson is like one of the few fighters i generally call like inconsistent in a very real sense but like if you look at someone like osp who's called inconsistent all the time kind of just does the same thing every fight it just works sometimes and doesn't work other times but Round to round, OSP is OSP. Where round to round, Michael Johnson goes from like a, a clear top ten to a, a, a bottom ten. <laughs> mm-hmm. and that's the uh, we filled our quota of Michael Johnson discussion for the year. Yeah, probably. <laughs> he is done. This is funny. He's on a three fight losing streak, and he looked good for like five combined rounds and all those fights. Um, it's unfortunate. Very unfortunate. <laughs> Uh, let's see here. No. no. I don't know who Danilo Marquez is, so I don't think I can talk about that fight against Mike Rodriguez. I think Rodriguez. he had, like... Did he fight Cadiz Ibrahimov? I think he did. I, I don't think know. I watched Cadiz Ibrahimov fights. I just feel like I've heard of him fighting Cadiz Ibrahimov. But did he win? I, I didn't watch that <laughs> fight. Yes, he did beat Cadiz Ibrahimov. Okay. I don't know. He, Have... passed. he passed that test. I am a savant when it comes to bottom five heavyweights. Mike Rodriguez can, like, do striking, though, right? He's, like, a semi-functional kickboxer. Yeah, I've seen him do, like, clinch stuff sometimes. He beat um, that, he, the guy that just kicks. beat Khalil Roundtree. He kicks. He does uh, He does flying knees. Yeah, he got robbed against Ed Herman, I think, right? Where he knocked him out a few times and then got Kimura. <laughs> oh, yeah, he knocked out Marcin Prachnia. That's, uh... 
Okay. Oh, uh, I don't have anything to say about that, but that fight's happening. <laughs> yeah, we're just at this point. This is just like the regular MMA type podcast where we just go through records because we don't know who these people are. Wikipedia analysis. Uh, Meatball Molly McCann, the best boxer and wrestler in the UFC, um, had her three fight winning streak snapped by Talia Santos. That's uh, she did something. That's who beat Jillian Robertson, elite prospect nice. at, at women's flyweight. Um, the most interviewable woman in the UFC. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh jeez uh, and she's fighting someone without a wikipedia page so I could be doing this on tapology but I don't want to open a new page so uh, Yusuf Zalal is fighting he's like a a decent fighter yeah he's fine very um, outside uh, volume type that's what uh, when people say oh, the new the new breed of MMA fighters are going to you know be doing MMA like the whole time but they're not going to come from anyone discipline I think that's what happens in the case yeah, of Zalal is what happens when you do that. But he did get beaten by the one true prospect in MMA, Ilya Topuria. That's right. And now this is, uh, I think this is a tune-up, right? This is meant to be a tune-up at least. Or Sengwu Choi is uh, the really big one. The the big guy who lost to Muzar and Gavin Tucker. Uh, I don't know. I don't think I've watched those fights. No, I did watch the Tucker fight. Yeah, so I could beat him up and like grapple him and stuff. Yeah. I don't know. I just I, I trust I trust uh, Zalal to beat people around that level. He seems decent. Yeah, he's fine. Are these announced bouts on the card? I really need to get off Wikipedia. It's not a good place to <laughs> uh, to look at. Yeah, I think Valia versus Day is confirmed. So I think those are. Um, I don't really have much to say about Valia. I was gonna watch some of his fights when he was still fighting Julio Arce. But uh, at this point, it's not really worth it because Martin Day is kind of bad. He just lost to uh, Grant. Davy Grant? Is that his name? I think it's Davy Grant. Uh, he got left hooked, which is pretty bad. But mm-hmm. um, yeah. I- I've heard good things about Timur Valiev. He was really beating the crap out of that guy, uh, Shrevin, before uh, getting knocked out like for no reason. So, oh, that turned into an NC. Very nice. Trevin Jones. Yeah, Trevin Jones. I didn't Jones. watch that fight, I don't think. No, maybe yeah, I, I watched it. Uh, Valiev kind of beat the crap out of him against the fence. Did like this, did some body work, I remember, and dropped him with it. And then um, got kind of memed, and Jones came out with the win. He, uh, he does have a win over Oleg Borisov, but it's from 2012. So hold off on rating mm. that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he's on a win streak. Uh, people like him. That, that enjoy the uh, Russian MMA scene. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. If it sounds like he was winning his last fight and Martin Day is on a losing streak, let's just go with that with our Wikipedia analysis. <laughs> Hopefully he looks cool because uh, I want more interesting fighters to talk about at Bantamweight. I keep saying it's the best weight class and I keep running out of people to talk about <laughs> in it. Featherweight kind of creeped up on it and lightweight has gotten very good uh, in the unranked portions. Speaking of, uh, pretty, like, Nice little striker matchup at lightweight. Justin James versus Devontae Smith. Um, it's two guys who are effective with the tools they have and have some pretty hard stop limitations, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't mind Justin James that much, but like a lot of what he does is... We saw against um, Gabriel Benitez in James's last fight where like all of his offense is just this, these really big level-changing uh, flurries and mm-hmm. Benitez just uppercut the crap out of him and need him to finish the fight. So, James is pretty solid. He does this, like, nice weaving left hook. I think that's what killed uh, Frank Camacho. 
but you know he's he's limited. Devontae Smith, uh, is this the first time he's fought since Kama Worthy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He looked reasonably promising in terms of like killing guys really really quickly uh, before that, but um, Kama Worthy turned around and did that to him. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah he got this, this should be fun, right? Yeah, he got like hit with a short left hook on like the ear. Uh, Kama Worthy's a decent counter puncher, so it isn't like a huge mark against him. I don't think, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Something will happen there. <laughs> yeah, I expect this one to be fun at least. And uh, I don't know. I don't think I have it in me. Yeah, I think that's about fights. it. I don't understand who the rest of these people are. Um, I'm, I'm an a la carte fan. I'm a casual. <laughs> Same. But yeah, this card is decent. Things will happen on it. I'm going to watch it. And uh, yeah, that's kind of all I have to say. Yeah, I'm done. Uh, keep up with... We should have the Unranked Prospects piece running soonish, right? Uh, yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, what else do we have? Hopefully tomorrow. Today is Monday that I'm saying this, so probably Tuesday. But now I'm in a rush to get out uh, our panel discussion about the top four lightweights and how they match up with each other because while we were recording this, uh, Michael Chandler versus Charles Oliveira is like unofficially announced, which... Makes me mad, honestly. Yeah, that doesn't make much sense. the wrong fight. That doesn't make sense, because now what is it? Poye Gaethje 2 for the title? Like, don't, don't do that. Um, I mean, I don't hate it as a fight. Like, I'm fine with it, but the booking is just ass-backwards. Yeah, it's, it's like, very logical to do Poye Oliveira and Chandler Gaethje, and I love those fights. What, this is just, like, okay, you have two guys that are, like, fresh in the division. You're going to kill them against each other? And just have it do a rematch? But I, I don't know. I don't okay, know. well, there's a follow-up confirmation that it's not happening on February 13th, which implies that it will be happening on a later date. Uh, plenty of time for it to not happen. but Hopefully. <laughs> like, I'm glad that, like, they are matching up the top four, but I don't... Not like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like this is mostly if they're using up the fresh guys, they're probably going to do, like, Poirier-Connor 3 or Poirier-Diaz. That's the worst case. Yeah. Um, and, like, fucking Gaethje RDA. Something dumb. Yeah, RDA might sneak his way in there. I was thinking it was going to be Nate Diaz that snuck his way in there. It's, like, no reason. Just throwing yeah. Nate Diaz in the mix. But, yeah, that's about it. Um, support us on Patreon, please. All of the money on Patreon goes directly to our staff. Uh, that includes our writers and our video makers and our podcasters and uh, Yadsenen, who makes our thumbnails and a lot of our artwork. And, I don't know. We, we need to keep giving them money so they can keep doing stuff. So if you like the fight site existing, you should grab a Patreon subscription and also check out the different tiers because we, we give you stuff in return. So figure that Very out. Very good stuff, too. Figure it out. Uh, anything else to say? Uh, no, that's pretty much it. I think next week is uh, Usman Burns. I don't know what else is on that card, but uh, Usman much. Burns is good enough to talk about. It has uh, Rivera Munoz, too, so we'll talk about that. That's good. Yeah, those are two good fights. Cool. Okay. Goodbye. Cruel world.